If you would, those who are able, if you would stand as a simple expression of honor as we read God's Word. We read from Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 21. Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 21. We'll read through the end of chapter 3. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we, hold that, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold it. And we're so grateful that we have God's word to read this morning. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. I'm eager just to jump right into this scripture. Because this is the first really positive sermon from Romans since we started this book. And it starts with the words, but now. There's a transition being made here. But now. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Raise your hand if you were here last week. Okay, some of you. Last week was weird. Everybody sat over here last week. It was really weird. I'm glad you were here, and some of you have migrated over, I see. Last week was tough. I heard someone say that they felt as though they had been punched in the stomach based on last week's scripture. So mission accomplished, I guess. All of these scriptures have been tough since we entered Romans. Since we entered Romans, we have, we've learned a lot about God's righteousness. We've learned a lot about God's judgment, God's wrath. And we've learned a lot about God's law, his, his rules, his standards. And they are lofty. There are over 600 laws, rules in the Old Testament. That's a lot to try to keep up with. Then God simplified it to the big ten, sort of the top ten list of his laws. We went over all that last week. I I promise I won't retread all that ground this week. But you know, the Ten Commandments starts off with, have no other gods in front of me. Don't worship anything else more than you worship me. And we said last week how right away, at, at the very first one, we're already lawbreakers. But even if ten's too much to keep up with, Jesus simplified it to two. What's the, what is, when Jesus said what the two biggest commandments were, who remembers what the biggest one was? 
Love the Lord your God with all your everything, all of your soul, your mind, your strength, all-encompassing love, worship for God. When Jesus summed up all the commandments into two, the very first one was total worship to God. How many of you live this week totally worshiping God above everything else? Finding him most worthy of your time and your energy and your resources. Finding him trustworthy with all of your cares and concerns. Yeah, we're already lawbreakers, aren't we? What's the second one? The second most important commandment. Who remembers that one? Yeah, love people selflessly. One requires a radical amount of trust in God. One requires a radical amount of selflessness to love other people. Anyway, I'm starting to retread last week, even though I just said I wasn't going to. We're in trouble. We're sinners. And we learned last week that the law will not save us. Rules don't save us. They just reveal the problem. I'm having a really hard time not just wanting to go into last week's sermon. I'm not going to do it. We have a whole bunch of scripture for this morning. Yeah, I know how I proceed. Thinking out loud here. Um, All these laws, all these high lofty laws that we cannot seem to keep, they reveal something about God. They reveal that God is righteous. God is righteous. You know, the higher the bar in an organization, the higher the quality of the organization. The higher the bar, the higher the quality. If you want to get it, I know Kevin's a part of a group at school. There's requirements to be a part of a group. And the the more strict the requirements, that must mean the, the better it is to be a part of that group. It's the same way with jobs. There are some jobs that require no qualifications whatsoever. That's pretty much all the jobs I've worked up to this point. And there are some jobs that require degrees and experience. Those are loftier jobs. God is more righteous than we can understand. And it's revealed to us through the fact that his law is harder than we can handle. But there's another way that his righteousness is revealed. He's even more righteous than we realize. That's where Paul is going in the next verse. I hope you're still following with me. Starting in verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This is the righteousness that is apart from the law. God has revealed he's righteous through the law, but he's even more righteous. And it's been revealed apart from the law through faith. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. To be received by faith. I want to picture a judge. Picture in your mind a judge. Mine looks like... Um, Carl Banks, or whatever his first name was, from Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Nobody knows Fresh Prince of Bel-Air? Okay. Picture a judge in your mind. Is he a good judge or a bad judge? Well, how would you know? How do you know if a judge is a good judge? Well, they're just. When a guilty man stands before a good judge, a good judge condemns him. And that judge is, is righteous to do so. If I've committed a crime and I stand before a judge, if he's a good judge, he's going to condemn me to whatever the consequences of that crime are, is, are. That is a good, righteous judge. But God, 
is even a step more righteous than that. Because God not only rightly condemns guilty people, God is able to transform guilty people into innocent people. When you see the word justify in here, that's basically what that means, to, to declare someone legally approved, judicially approved. God is so awesome, so righteous, such a good judge, that he not only rightly condemns the guilty people, but he transforms guilty people into innocent people. And he does it in such a way that he doesn't have to ignore the law and he doesn't have to ignore the sin. His righteousness is not compromised at all. And I want you to really think about it for just a minute because this is kind of a mind twister. I read, I read a horrible, horrible story this weekend. I, I told myself I wasn't going to share it, but here I am. It was about some things that are going on in Sudan. And it was about some things that are going on to children in Sudan. It was about children who were made to kill their own parents and to dismember them. And I I don't want to go into the gory details, but it's horrific, horrible. Now, if those people who did this to these children stood before a good judge, we would want, vehemently, we would want them to be condemned to the harshest punishment available. Now, what about someone who doesn't make children kill their own parents, but they killed somebody? If we were in a courtroom and a murderer was in front of a judge, we would want that murderer to receive his consequences, his judgment, wouldn't we? Would you? You with me? Okay, now what about someone who stole something? Didn't kill anybody, but he did take something that wasn't his. If we were in the courtroom and they stood before this judge, would you want them to receive their condemnation? Yeah, I think we would. Maybe not as vehemently as these horrible people who made children kill their own parents or murderers, but yes. Now, what if you were standing before the judge and you had done something wrong? You had broken the law. Would you want that judge to condemn you? Now, when we stand there, we kind of want mercy and grace. Yet we acknowledge that if a judge just gives somebody grace, if he just let these, these murderers go, forgives them, he's not a very good judge at all, is he? Yet somehow God is able to do that. God is able to forgive us in such a way that he maintains the law and doesn't ignore the sin, doesn't ignore the crime. He is a supernaturally more exquisite, more amazing being than than we can imagine. And this is just one of the ways that we see it. So the question is, how how can he do this? Well, there's two big words in here I'm going to teach you. The first one is redemption. It says, All have fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption basically means to be freed, as though someone paid for you, like a slave who was bought and then freed, or someone in jail who someone else comes and posts bond for them. See, God's able to do this because through Jesus Christ, he paid the debt. God didn't ignore the consequences. Someone paid the debt. 
Now, you don't have to say the amount, but who in here has debt? Oh, you guys are doing pretty good. Not, not as many as I thought. I have debt. I know that my debt is not going to just be forgiven. My real debt for our van, for instance. I'm going to have to pay that. A debt just can't disappear. And our debt to God because of our sin can't just disappear. He can't just say, you know what? I'm a good God. I'm nice. I just forgive you. Somebody pays the debt. If you owe me $30 and I say, forget about it. You don't have to pay me back. That $30 debt didn't disappear. I absorbed it. Are you following me? I don't know if you'd tell me if you didn't. So many of us think that because we've heard so much about how merciful and good God is, that he'll just forgive us. But he can't just forgive us. He would be totally unrighteous to just forgive us, a bunch of guilty people, who owe the debt of our lives, for the wages of sin is death. Somebody had to absorb that debt. Who was it? Jesus, that's right, that's where Jesus comes in. Redemption. There's another big word, propitiation. You guys are going to learn so much this morning. We're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation is not a word that's going to come up in your usual conversation around the water cooler. Propitiation means the absorption of wrath. When Jesus was the propitiation for us, it means he absorbed God's wrath for us. And we see all through the Old Testament this this concept of propitiation with the whole sacrificial system. I know a lot of people don't understand that. I'm still learning a lot about it myself. But for their sins, they would kill a spotless lamb or a spotless animal. And that blood, it was as though it it was receiving the death that we had earned from our sins. God is able to justify us, not because he just forgot about his wrath. He expressed his wrath. His wrath is not make-believe. He's not like a parent who says, all right, little Johnny, I'm going to count to three, and if you don't stop, there's going to be trouble. One, two, three. Johnny, stop it. I'm going to count to three again, and there's no wrath ever. I mean, I'm guilty of that. I'm not making fun. You parents know you have to enforce those consequences or you end up being a pretty bad parent. God's wrath promised all through Scripture for sin is not an empty threat. It is real. People face it. Unless you have a propitiation, unless you have a substitute sacrifice, someone else to absorb that wrath. That's what Jesus did. I want to read you from Hebrews chapter 10 about this. This is another look at this whole idea of the law and God's wrath and what Jesus did for us. And I think it will shed some light on this idea of propitiation, if you'll follow with me. The writer says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form, of these realities, it can never, 
by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. In other words, all these sacrifices that the Jews were making, they could never make them perfect. They were just a shadow of what was to come in Jesus Christ. Skip down a little bit. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings. You've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Jesus said that God didn't desire all these sacrifices to go on forever and ever and ever. God prepared Jesus to be the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate propitiation. Down to verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to to us for after saying, This is the covenant that I'll make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I'll put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I'll remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So we don't have to make any offering for sin anymore. Jesus did it. He, our sacrifice, our substitute sacrifice, our propitiation. So who receives this? Does everybody just stand before God in the end and he says, justified, zap, you're innocent now. Does everybody just receive it? Well, most of you know the answer, but let's look at it in the passage says the righteousness, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe. It's believers who receive it. Now many of you have heard that time and time and time again, but really think about that. It's believers who are justified, not really, really good doers. Believers. Not people who are really, really good at checking off the boxes. Believers. In other words, there's nothing for you to do. As I prepare a sermon, I'm thinking, what do I want them to do? There's nothing for you to do. There's something for you to believe. But there's nothing for you to do. So many of you guys and me who come to church want to walk out of here with something to do. Because when we do stuff, we feel self-righteous. We feel like we're working our way toward heaven. But that's just not how it works. The gospel is news. It's not advice. It's news. That Jesus came. Jesus lived the life we failed to live. He died the death we earned. The victory has been won. Just believe. Remember the story of the, um, when the sea was stormy and the disciples and Jesus were all on the boat and the disciples were freaking out because it looked like they were all going to die? But Jesus was below board asleep. And they rushed down there and they said, Do you, not, you don't care that we're all going to die? And Jesus gets up and he, I don't know what gesture he would have done, but he calmed the sea and he turns to the disciples. And what does he say to the disciples? Do you remember? Does he say, why didn't you guys do something? Yeah, he, he says, why are you freaking, where's your faith? What, why aren't you believing? He didn't say, why, why aren't you doing something? It reminds me of Mary and Martha, too. Jesus comes to visit those two sisters, Mary and Martha. And he's sitting there in their house. And Mary just sits by his feet and is just like, she just can't take her eyes off of Jesus is there and is listening to him teach and is just 
sitting there listening. And Martha is super busy. She's making all the food and setting the table, and she's got so much to do. Jesus is here. There's probably a lot of people who are going to want to come and eat. She's got so much to do, and she comes to Jesus, and she's like, do you not even care that I'm doing all the work, and she's not doing anything? She's just sitting there doing nothing. You remember what Jesus said to her? He's like, Martha, Martha, Martha. You're so busy, so anxious, so worried about so many things, when really there's only one thing that's necessary, and Mary has chosen it. She just, no, she's not doing anything, but that's fine, because she believes something. She believes that I'm who I said I am, and she's just sitting here, just sitting here being a believer. This is so hard for us. It's so hard for us. We, we equate busyness with holiness so often. And it's such a strong desire for me that we not become a busy group of Christians, but a fruitful group of Christians who believe. Because in all of our busyness and in all of our activities, we can just miss Jesus altogether. And then one day, we realize that it's been months since we have not felt anxious and worried and we realize we've forgotten how to trust Jesus at all. Even though we've been doing all the stuff. I think it's possible to have your daily quiet time every morning, not miss it. To be at church every Sunday, not miss it. To be on 15 different church boards and to still drift away from Jesus in our busyness. I think if the gospel took root in our hearts, we would probably, in some ways, do less, not more. But what we did would be more fruitful. Because don't get me wrong, the gospel belief does create action. James, look at the book of James, and he says, you know, you say you have faith, but you have no works. You're not doing anything. I don't believe you have your faith. It does make us do stuff. But the trick is, we can't extract belief by activity. You know, we have... If you look at our role, we have probably around 130-ish people who are associated with the church pretty regularly. They may not all be members, but they come. Now, we have an average of probably around 80 who come on Sunday mornings to the big event, this, the worship service. And we have probably around 40 who are involved in the nuts and bolts, the life of the church uh, you know, our relationships, our meetings, our boards, the things that make things run. So sometimes as a pastor, you can look at that and get discouraged and think, where is everybody? All these people. And you can know that a lot of these people aren't, they don't really worship God. You just kind of know. And you hear some background stories of what's going on in families, and you realize a lot of men aren't being obedient husbands, loving their wives. A lot of parents aren't being obedient parents, training their kids. And often my first instinct can be, well, what kind of activity can we do to make people into the kind of people they need to be? And that's often when the church calendar starts to get full. And that's often when you start to look at your personal calendar and be like, oh my gosh, I got to go again to another church thing. And I think I'm realizing that no amount of activity is going to make us holy or righteous. It's just Jesus. It's just Jesus. It's just belief in Jesus. And then from that new heart, that new desire, in uh, First or Second Corinthians somewhere it says that 
God made Jesus to be sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. As we sink more and more into the gospel and into Jesus and sit by his feet, we just become righteous. Those changes come like fruit. Fruit grows without you pulling it out of the apple tree, making it happen, it grows. I'm rambling. Back to my notes. Christianity is is not about doing, it's about trusting. It's not about effort, it's about faith. It's not about your record, it's about Jesus' record. It's not about achieving, it's about receiving. It's not about a reward for good work, it's about receiving a gift. So why? Why would God do all this? I want you to look back into the passage at the end of verse 25. It says, This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I really tried to make this passage more about us. I, I, it's always a temptation to try to make the passage about you because I feel like that would be most interesting to you. I can see when I'm boring you. I can see your faces. And I don't ever want to do that, mainly because I'm a people pleaser and I want everybody to be like, Matt did such a good job. So it's always tempting for me to try to make it about you and me. But in reality, I could not make this passage about us because it's not about us. It's just not about you. It's not about me. Why did God do all this awesome stuff in the gospel? This was to show God's righteousness. Yes, he loves you. Yes, you're important to him. But you're not the most important thing in the universe, and neither am I. It's God. It's about God. It's to show his righteousness. We have such an ingrown version of Christianity And I do too, where I want every sermon to be about me and what I can do or what I can learn about me. And our church becomes about us and me, and it's just so ingrown. When in reality, nothing about the gospel should turn us inward like that. The gospel frees us from ourselves. Some of you want to be a part of something big, bigger, and you drive down the road and you listen to music, and some of the music, some pop music has become so epic sounding. I listened to 95.1 yesterday. And a lot of that pop music just sounds so epic. Like, you would think that whoever wrote this song must be living the most adventurous, big-scale, important life. And you feel like you are when you're listening to it. I'm just driving my old beat-up car with my rake in it to go rake at the house in Albemarle. I'm listening to this music, and you feel like you're going to go conquer the world. People want epic. They want big. They want to be swept up into something bigger than themselves. And we just can't find it here because we're designed to find it in God. That's why almost all the Bible isn't about us at all. It's all about God. That's why the first commandment is love God. Not improve really well, really quick. It's just forget about yourself. Love God. You're a sinner. You're all screwed up. I'm a sinner. I'm all screwed up. But man, God is awesome. That's why I aspire for us to be a group of Christians who love God a lot and are growing in it. And then loving people. Maybe we could just be totally not self-conscious at all anymore. 
be totally about God and people. Wouldn't that be refreshing? Wouldn't that be a relief? I call this the reverse pastor effect. I've talked about the pastor effect before, though I don't know if I ever named it that. But now that I'm a pastor, I have a certain effect on people out there in the world. Often they immediately, upon finding out that I'm a pastor, give me their resume of why they're good. And it usually starts with, I know I don't go to church or read my Bible, but I love my husband, wife. I love my kids. Try to be a good person. I never ask, I don't ask them. I don't come in and say, I'm a pastor and I want to know, are you in church every Sunday? Maybe pastors used to do that. And that's why there's a reaction that people do that when they find out I'm a pastor. But there's some people, they find out I'm a pastor and they don't go that route at all. They say something about something amazing they learned about God in the Bible. And our conversation immediately links up and we start talking about God. And it's beautiful. And that's more what it's supposed to be. The reverse pastor effect. Okay, I'm over. Will, I'm sorry. There's some implications of this. I'm just going to hit real quick. Uh, Starting in verse 27. You don't mind if I read the Bible to you a lot. It's the only thing valuable coming out of my mouth. So I'm going to read verse 27 through 31. Then what becomes of our boasting? In other words, well, if I don't have to do anything, if it's a gift and Jesus did everything, what am I going to boast about? It's excluded. You're not going to boast. You're going to stop boasting. You're going to stop being arrogant. You're going to stop being self-righteous because you can't. You're just going to forget about yourself and you're going to worship God and love people. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Remember, this whole book kind of has an overarching theme of Paul trying to unite these religious Jewish Christians and these former pagan Gentile Christians together. And he's saying, God's the God of both. Since God is one who will justify, God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Just real briefly, two implications about this whole truth of God being so righteous that he can actually transform us into innocent people while upholding the law and not ignoring sin, and he does it all through Jesus, and all I have to do is believe to receive it. Two implications of that for the church. One, I already mentioned it, no arrogance. It is the arrival of true humility to receive the gospel. No more arrogance, but humility. And two, unity. Paul's been working so hard to say, you religious Jewish people, you're horrible. You're a group of pathetic sinners. You really need Jesus. You pagan Gentile Christians, you're horrible. You're, you really need Jesus. He's been working so hard to unite them, and it's the gospel that unites us. So just imagine our church. I think we're a church that struggles if we're going to be a law church or a faith church. I think every church is. But the more we become a faith church, the more humble our people will be, and the more united we'll be. You know that there are, for some of us, people in the church that you really just can't hardly get along with. 
And that's not this church, that's every church because people are aggravating. You are too, so am I. There's probably somebody that doesn't like you. If we could grow in the gospel, though, that would fade. Well, no, let me, let me rephrase that. As we are growing in the gospel, that is fading. I see it. And we could be this beautiful church that's united and free of legalism and arrogance and self-righteousness. And when people come in, there's just something different about these people. They don't seem to be self-conscious at all. They seem to be freed from all that. And that's what I want for us. But just to be clear, the big idea is relax. Just relax. Some of you who feel so bad about yourselves, it's worse than you even think. Just relax. Because God, through Jesus, has made provision for all that. Just relax and believe. Maybe this week, be like Mary. Go just sit with Jesus. You don't have to try so hard to achieve your salvation. Jesus achieved it for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good news. Thank you for this scripture. And I thank you for your Holy Spirit and the promise I have that your word won't go forth without accomplishing its purposes. So I I thank you that your word is strong even when my presentation of it is weak. And um, help us. Help us to believe. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.